The road to space isn't paved with technology and rockets alone. It's built on the dreams, risk, and relentless spirit of those who dare look up and say, we belong there. For over 30 years, the Space Frontier Foundation has been a home for these visionary, radical, action-oriented individuals. Hear their stories, learn how space was shaped, and revel in the revolution of commercial space pioneers. Here's today with the inimitable Charles Miller. I know Charles from a bunch of my introduction into the industry, but uh, for those who don't know, Charles, how far back does your involvement in this whole commercial space thing go? How did you get involved in commercial space in the beginning? Well, that's a long story, Sean, but I, thanks I for know. having me, you know. I, there's a lot of uh, space enthusiasts and more space advocates out there, so I'm happy to share my story. Hopefully, others will take some lessons learned from it, not make the same mistakes I made. And uh, I love the saying, make new mistakes. So uh, share the history here of all the uh, the failures we had and, and the learnings I developed. And uh, hopefully, you'll make new mistakes, not repeat the old mistakes of the past. So I think this is a great service you're providing. It really started as a founding story, um, at, and it goes throughout my life. And, and I'll tie this back to that on occasion, is in fifth grade, I kind of, in hindsight, had a little bit of an existential crisis. I don't know if it's a real crisis, mm. but I was like going, why am I here? What's the meaning of life? Why why is my consciousness in this brain and not in not over there and that other person? And it's like this is weird. And it just came to me. Well, the answer is is you're here to do something great, right? And it kind of resonated. My whole body kind of like it was like that was true. I'm here to do something great. And so what I realized in hindsight is I became a missionary in that moment. That I'd made a decision. My life was here to do something great. And then I just had to. What the hell did that mean, right? What mission was I on to do something great? Every decision I made, you know, in the in the next 50 plus years is like, well, if it isn't about making a difference, making some, doing something great, then I was just completely not interested in it. And I've all my decisions from then on were out of that decision I, that this fifth grader made just out of the blue. It just came to him. I didn't choose. It was just kind of, it just, it was true and I chose it. And so I got, I loved space. I love science fiction. I read all the classics. Probably the most important to me was Heinlein. There's Asimov and Clark and, and Niven. But I love space and I wanted to be an astronaut. I went to college for that purpose. And before, and before we get to college, hold on. You have to do something great and you like space. What were the other things that you, as this fifth grader who now has this manifest destiny thing that you have taken on, what were the other things that fifth grade you was thinking about on how you were going to do something impactful? Like, were there other things? Well, there are other things I quickly discarded. So I was good at chess and okay. I loved chess in seventh grade. I went to some tournaments and I did, did pretty well. Did I won a small prize, but I saw all these other chess players were so much better than me. I said, well, that's it. I'm not interested okay. in that. I'm not going to be great. And I was just like, my mom just like didn't understand. It's like, well, you know, no interest in that. You quit chess. You did really well. And then you're like, yep. But it wasn't great. Right. So, okay, good. 
All right. So, so what like, was the, okay, move what? on. Next thing. So I was constantly pivoting. And so this okay. is a, that, that's a great way of Sean is like I pivoted quite a few thing, times in my life in space. And it goes to mindset. Right. And I yeah. know you care about that. It goes to mindset is like, what is your core reason for being? If your mindset is focused on something truly big and audacious and, you, you know, you can have setbacks, but those are just short term, near term setbacks you learn from. It's like you do something different. You pivot. Uh, entrepreneurs call it pivoting. Right. Yeah. But, you know, if you have that mission, it keeps you going and you just have you learn from it and you pivot and do something different. Okay. So, all right, good. So there were different things you were trying and they didn't, they didn't resonate. They were nice. And so I love space. And I was, I was thinking at the time, and this is, this was the paradigm everybody was in. If you love space in the late seventies, early eighties, and I graduated from high school in 81, you're going to be an astronaut. And there's this thing called the shuttle. It was a reusable launch vehicle that it was gonna it was gonna open space. It was it was the future. It was the leading edge of breakthroughs in in space technology. And I decided, well, I'm gonna go be an astronaut. I'm gonna go fly in the shuttle. I had to choose between going to the Air Force Academy or or, or being a payload specialist, a scientist, and I chose the latter. And I decided to. Uh, go to Caltech, which was the best, from what I could tell, college in the country to be a scientist or engineer. I went to Caltech, discovered another thing was like, I I was naturally good in math and science, but I wasn't great. I I Mm -hmm. met people who were great. And I also wasn't, I actually learned that I didn't like the doing of math and science. I actually liked much more interacting with people, policy, business, those types of things at the intersection of policy and business and science and tech learned I, I was great and I was very good at. Okay. And at first it was with policy. And so I was I was at Caltech and thinking, trying to figure out, well, what what I was going to do. And it was actually a, my freshman year, my best friend from he told me about this thing called the L5 Society. I go, L what? <laughs> L5. And he said, you got to check it out. It's just like these really big ideas about what you can do in space. And I checked it out and it just, you know, it blew my mind. It was the, this was greatness. This was something that you could set your life to, to do something great for humanity and spread life into the cosmos. And it was based on fundamental first principles on the physics by Dr. Gerard O'Neill. So I didn't run into O'Neill's ideas until late 1981. And okay. through the L5 Society, and that the fundamental first principles is you could build large-scale settlements in space built on top of the foundation of large-scale industrial development of space, right? That that And there's these businesses, including space, solar power, and tourism. And I was just like immediately captured by the big, big vision and the ideas. And so at Caltech, I started the first chapter of the Caltech L5 Society started inviting people to do that. So I just got into space activism because it would just capture me like this was what I wanted to do. I just, there's no question. I was, I was doing this. It was like right? a light bulb. It was hey. just a light bulb. And I just had to, I made a ton of failures as a grassroots activist of trying to get people involved and doing things and, and being an activist at the local level, a whole bunch of wasted time, but it was all learning, all failures. Yeah. And, and so that's how it started. Tell me a little bit more about you and the time, the context that you were in. So it's great to understand as you are in your 
Well, this is post Apollo. Right. This is this post Apollo. Was everybody. So the context is the space shuttle is the future. Yep. That what succeeded was Apollo, this grand national vision by the president. Kennedy took us to the moon, you know, from 61 to 69, did amazing things. And it was inevitable that this is this is how we're going to open up space, the, that this reusable launch vehicle and Apollo. And so that was kind of the learning. So I got organized. I was as this chapter activist. We I helped. I was a part of organizing the California Space Development Council. A bunch of the chapter activists in California all got together and started organizing bigger and coordinating we, we formed the California Space Development Council that was out of the ideas of O'Neill. That became very organized on the West Coast. We were going to do whatever it took to. And part of it was like we needed a repeat of Apollo. Yeah. We needed to get the president of the United States to declare again that we should go to the moon and Mars and these big ideas. That was kind of conventional wisdom. And the shuttle was conventional wisdom in the early to mid 80s. Yeah. Until it all fell apart, right? And then we were just like, we were just wrong. The whole world was wrong, but we were just in this paradigm. So you're iterating, you're testing different things. You obviously had locked at least partially on to space, right? Because you yeah. said, hey, that's where the, the future is in space. Okay. And we wanted large-scale settlements, millions of people living and working in space. You may have heard that phrase. That was common yep. in the L5 society in the mid-80s. Um, you were, Jeff you Bezos were, has mentioned that in the last decade, but that was a common saying back in the 80s. That was our goal. Like, well, what do you mean by right. space? Well, we want millions of people living and working in space. And, where and it was. was built on, especially at the beginning of the 80s, that's built on the promise of a shuttle. Cheap access to space. You know, shuttle was going to provide cheap access. That's, yep. that's how NASA sold it. Now, if you study your history... It's very clear from the historians who talked to the engineers, they knew it was a lie. They, but the NASA of the 70s said, we need a program to follow yep. Apollo or the whole institution could go away. And, they, and the OMB and the White House and Congress said, well, we'll buy this reusable shuttle thing that can fly 50 times a year for $10 million a flight. If you can do that, wonderful. Started designing in the late 60s. And where they were fully reusable and the tech didn't support it. And they said in the early 70s said we can't get there. That the the brilliant technical people at NASA knew they couldn't support it, but they sold it anyway. That's because that's what the politicians and the, our elected leaders demanded to get the and, approval of the project. And the young Charles Miller bought it. Oh, I totally bought it. Hook, okay. I can think her in as I was in high school, like, yeah, that's the future. Yeah. So, and you are obviously not alone in that. Um, yeah. And I think we all bought it. You know, so very but, few people dissented until Challenger and until Challenger happened. And then I want also want to give credit to the immediate people who recognize we need to do completely something different because we learned from them. Challenger was the first breakdown le leading to the, the breakthroughs. And then there was another breakdown with the vision for space exploration leading to more breakthroughs. But you have to have failure to lead to innovation and success. Yes. Um, out of curiosity, how did your friend from high school that was in the Coast Guard Academy, how did he, you said he told you about L5. Yeah, he, I was saying, remind me about, he said, well, he saw it in like, he was reading science fiction and there would be these ads by the L5 Society in the science fiction 
you know, magazines. Ah. And he thought it was really cool. And so he had talked to me. We just talked on the phone and and told me about it. He said, you got to check this out. And so I did. And that was that was it. So I don't know. Where is the Coast Guard Academy? Was that a long distance phone call? Oh, that. Yeah, that was a long distance phone call. Then. So, so that was an expensive phone call for the early 80s. So. Yeah. I mean, friends talking on the phone, you were paying by the minute. Right. And that yeah. was valuable enough that probably that. Right. You probably got to so We didn't do it that. all the time. Right. So, yeah. but when we did, it was a short call. You catch up really quick when it's a dollar a minute for yeah. you know, the call. <laughs> all right. So, um, you're introduced to L5, and numerous people mention L5 and uh, Gerard K. O'Neill, that O'Neillian vision. And your personal do something great. You've got space. And then, was there a, it sounds like there was a click that happened. You're like, okay, this is, I know the domain to work in, and now the vision was the right vision. Okay. Our strategy isn't working. Something, what's wrong here, right? You get this cognitive dissonance. Like I love the vision, what we're doing, it's not working. And so the the first thing is the shuttle collapse. I hadn't completely acknowledged that the shuttle was never going to succeed. A lot of people never did, right? But uh, so the first people, I think, I, I really want to give credit. I think his, there should be books written on this. The first credit was at, I think, an International Space Development Council uh, conference. Okay. And there was a group of chapter activists who were actually the San Diego L5, and the Tucson L5 societies. The two leaders of those were Andy Cutler and Jim Bowery, but there was a bunch of other people, including a great friend of mine and a great friend of the foundation, David Anderman, who was part of the San Diego L5. What they said is, you know what? We need to get NASA out of the role of being owning and operating the airline or the space line, right? We And the way to do that is is to start forcing NASA to express its demand for space transportation in a commercial way. And they drafted a bill. They said, you know what? We're going to draft a bill to require NASA to buy commercial launch services. And NASA, like, owned and operated the Delta and Atlas, right? They controlled it, right? And they bought, they paid for subcontractors to build the systems and some other company to operate the launch vehicle, but they were totally in control, and which is really weird these days. You know, sure. we never would have this revolution in space transportation if it wasn't for them and what they did next. So that so, that that bill. All right. So you personally, um, that was I've, 1986. Okay, and you graduated after they started thinking about this. Part of the problem is they are very negative, and they are right to be negative about the government being in control. But the way they communicated, it was hard to get at the the goodness of it. Mm. And But they were totally right, right? That we need to privatize launch service. We need to force NASA to do buy commercial launch services, get out of owning and operating launch vehicles. So it took us several years from them to do it. They But they drafted what was the Launch Service Purchase Act that actually four years later in 1990 passed. And there's a fascinating history of it. They got the bill. They got their two members of Congress, Jim Colby from Arizona and David Packard from San Diego, a Democrat and a Republican, to introduce the bill. Now, most bills get introduced and never go anywhere. Right. The fascinating thing here is they introduced the bill. And then David Packard, the congressman from San Diego, uh, thought it was he wasn't going to do anything about it. He got this call from NASA telling him as a congressman that he couldn't do this, that he couldn't pass the bill. 
completely counterproductive, pissed off the congressman. And he says, I'll yeah. show you. And they the actually then he went and worked all his colleagues on both sides of the aisle. And they got consensus like we need to do this. And they passed the Launch Service Purchase Act of 1990, which was the first real breakthrough that I can trace a line to everything, all the big breakthroughs yeah. that have to today. So yeah. I, that was the beginning and uh, of the Launch Service Purchase Act. And it was very clear that General Dynamics and uh, and Douglas with the Delta, General Dynamics, the Atlas, reinvested in those those launch vehicles, started operating and started selling them commercially. And it was it was having its desired effect. They they in privately invested in the next generation of those vehicles. And and uh, it had an immediate public, you know, real impact. I wonder who that NASA person was that made that call. I don't know if well, I don't know who it is. Now, Courtney Stad was also a uh, entrepreneur at the time in the early yep. 80s. He he got personal calls telling him, you know, uh, they there was zero interest from the U.S. government, NASA, in supporting private commercial launch entrepreneurs. And yep. in fact, they did whatever they could to stop it. It was a threat. So, and this, <laughs> the creation of the world that we live in now did not happen overnight and it took a it whole, not, a whole it's, it's like changing the direction of an aircraft carrier, right? Yeah. It's slow and small changes back then have resulted in continual effort to huge changes today. And we still have more to go. So we now have a, the context of late 80s. So I, I didn't recognize it. I didn't recognize how important it was. I was like, this is interesting. And I didn't, I, you know, in hindsight, I should have jumped in and been all in on supporting it. And I was like, hmm, I wasn't against it. I was supporting it. There was, there was a bunch of debate and fighting going on. Some very prominent space activists and space policy people reportedly were against it. I'm not going to name any names. Yeah. Uh, others may, but uh, we, you know, I just didn't recognize it. And then the vision for space exploration happened. We got what we asked for. The president of the United States, Bush 41, made a big announcement on the vision for space exploration that we we're going back to the moon and Mars. And he directed NASA to support it. NASA came out with this $400 billion monstrosity about how and go back to the moon and Mars. That was completely in. Congress said that's dead on arrival. There was no interest. And as space activists, you know, my my friends, Jim Muncy and, and Rick Tumlinson and Bob Werb at the Space Frontier Foundations and others there, Tim Kiger and Elisa Sisti Wynn had done this big petition drive. We got what was actually completely predictable now, and it was dead. In California, we were doing our thing and, you know, half a dozen people for the Space Frontier Foundation. There was a dozen plus people from the California Space Development Council, fellow travelers. We were like, Oh my God, you know, what do we do? This is a lot of people quit then. A lot of people just gave up then and went on and stopped being space activists. I didn't quit, but I was out of answers. I didn't know. Okay. This is like 1989, 80, 90. Okay. I was out of answers. I was like, I need to take a little bit of break. I don't know what to do. I don't know the strategy or tactics. I know our current strategy. I have the vision, I'm yep. still committed to the vision. The strategy and the tactics aren't working. I need to take a, a break and just think about it. And, and that's what I did. I took a, like a two year break and did something different. And that yeah. led to the breakthrough. It did help me think it through. Were you working? Were you full-time L5? Like, uh, well, are you I getting... was all my, all my 
How are you well, I actually worked at the National Space Society for a little over a year as the administrators okay. and number two. I was actually working for Indian tribes in California at the time. Okay. I was paying my bills working for Indian tribes. I had managed one of the International Space Development Conferences in Anaheim, the 1990 International Space Development Conference. I pulled together a bunch of people. I, I gave Bob Zubrin from the Mars Society his first big venue to, to pull together what became the Mars Society, the whole vision and strategy that he laid out and put him on uh, – like the concluding. So I'd done a number of things, but I was really out of ideas mm -hmm. and I was paying my bills by being a, a consultant for small tribes in California. I was helping them. I was paying my bills and helping local small tribes, Indian tribes in California with their problems. And so I just stopped doing not, space stuff. Not, you know, I just went off full time helping out California Indian tribes. And so the National Space Society at this time, somewhere along the, this is, that was right, post-merger, right National Space Society with the L5 Society and the National Space Institute had okay. merged around, I forget the exact year, 80, I think 86, 87, 87 yeah, yeah, around yeah. there. Right after the merger, I'd worked at the National Space Society. Lori Garver was the uh, executive director. I She brought hired me out of college to be okay. the administrator, and I did that for a year in D.C., and uh, then I moved back to California. Did you know, by the way, a previous conversation, um, Bob Werb apparently was had applied was, for the same he job. Was, he was got. a candidate to. He was. To and he's like, yeah, thank God they didn't pick me. But yeah. right. so, all right. So this community of folks, you've got a community that was L5. It folds in. You're working and supporting yourself in space. Right. But. There comes this. I was working at something completely non-space that enabled yeah. me to do space stuff in my free time. Okay. At the beginning, I was like really doing half time of that enough to pay my bills. Yeah. And and I wanted all on in space. And I said, you know what? I'm out of ideas. I'm just going to go full time working for California Indian tribes. I was doing. I started with one tribe soon helping dozens of tribes all across California with their political issues, with their policy issues, with working with the government, with economic development, with training their governments, organizing them. And the fascinating thing is that led to the next breakthrough, right? Okay. Sometimes you just need to let go of it and do something completely different. Yeah. And so what happened is one of the tribes came to me and said, we just lost $5,000 paying a consultant to help us try to get some money from Congress. And here's the problem. And, and what do you think? And I said, I think you need a different strategy. I think, and they go, what? He's like, don't just send your money to a consultant and let them do it. This is a, a democracy. You have the right to assemble and go represent your views. I, I would say organize these 17 tribes called the Tilly Hardwick tribes together, go to DC Tell them your problem and say you want help and, you know, want them to fix it. And this is and this is why. Make your case. And they said, that's a great idea. Will you do that for us? <laughs> and and so I was working for one of the tribes and I said, sure, I know what to do. I'll help organize the tribes together. We'll take the elected tribal leaders to D.C. I wrote the five page white paper about what the problem was, how it was created by the U.S. government. It's what the U.S. government had done to these tribes. This is what I proposed to fix it. And, and I drafted it. And then we had half a dozen of the leaders. We took a trip together to Washington, D.C. We met with the Bureau of Indian Affairs. We met with Congress. 
took us two years and Congress said, you're right, we should fix it. And we created a permanent appropriation for these 17 tribes that totally changed their future. All the tribes across California, there was a hundred of them, said, what did you do? How did you do it? <laughs> and I'm yeah, obviously you can see from the video, I'm a white guy. They elected me. They wanted to elect me the leader of the California, newly created California organization of all California small tribes. And I said, that's a really bad idea. And they said, okay, well, I said, why don't you just have somebody else do it and I'll help? And they said, no, you, you got to be a leader of this. And I, they insisted. And I said, well, I'll be the vice chair and then let Les, who's the chairman of another tribe, he be chair. And they said, no, you got to be co-chairs. So they really twisted my arm. And then we, we did the same thing again two years later. And we, we changed national Indian policy for all small tribes across the nation. And that there be a minimum level of funding. We called it base level funding for small tribes to organize their tribal governments because of all the things. It's like these small tribes, you know, have a hard time jumpstarting their economies and their governments. And they said, you, you need to create a base level funding. And everybody agreed. The members of Congress agreed. The, the Bureau of Indian Affairs agreed. And like, again, we changed national Indian policy. Did you call up your five year or fifth grader self and say, hey, I did it. I have had I a great felt, impact. You know, when the first time we had, it was a mineral, I was all by myself and I heard that we'd gotten this $1.7 million permanent appropriation for 17 tribes and every tribe would get $100,000 a year. I actually went and bought myself a drink. I still remember the moment. It resonated. It still sticks in my memory. It's like I, for the first time ever, I did something that made a real difference. I just celebrated myself and, and, and went and had a beer. And it's still, I knew exactly where I was at that moment when I learned. And I, for the first time, I said, I did it. I made a difference. Same thing with changing national ending policy for all small tribes. That happened, Sean. I'd, I'd actually forgotten about that. So and, it kind of resonated me, with me. While you are focused on solving this other problem, where is... The so I'm like continuing to think about space. My okay. still space is my real passion. Are and you talking what, about like when the meeting is over with the tribal council and you're standing around getting coffee? Do you go, hey, by the way, have you heard about the latest thing in space? Like, are you talking about it with probably still staying in tune with friends? I I, I think I maybe was writing a monthly column for what was called the Spacefaring Gazette that the okay. California Space Development Council is going on. I'm, I'm still thinking about it, but it's not all in. Still engaged and thinking about it, and I need a new idea. And, okay. uh, and so what I did with Indian tribes was the new idea. I, I would go to D.C. focus on doing talking to Indian Affairs, and then while I was there, I'd go see the uh, Space Subcommittee people, or I'd go okay. see Tim Kiger in Congressman Rohrabacher's office, who... Uh, who was working there. So I would just, you know, just keep in touch. There was the DCX going on. The Space Frontier Foundation was doing that. I was still involved with this California Space Development Council. Ben Muniz, I think, was president. I said, okay, I'll be vice president. And we wrote a paper. We wrote a paper that was uh, started the learning from, you know, the Launch Service Purchase Act. We attacked um, what was going on in the NASA over the X-34, they gave out a, a sweetheart deal to Orbital Sciences on the X-34. Sole source, no competition. X-34 was a, an X-vehicle focused on reusable launch, launch technology. 
that was a, um, you know, it was a Mach 6, to, um, I think may go to Mach 8 reusable first stage. And they didn't have any competition. They gave a sweetheart deal to Orbital because J.R. Thompson, former deputy administrator, was now number two at Orbital. Okay, this is not how you, you know, open up space by giving sweetheart deals from NASA to their favorite contractor. Yeah. And, and we attacked it. And we asked people to call the White House and protest it. And a bunch of people did. This thing starting the internet, we were encouraging people of the internet. I think this is 94. And, and encouraging people to call the White House and protest what was going on with NASA and X-34. And a bunch of people did. I heard later from a NASA executive that he got called in the carpet in front of Dan Golden and yelled at. And they made changes to the program that uh, eventually collapsed it. And Orbital had their own reasons for getting out. They didn't like, there was too much control by NASA Marshall telling them how to design their X-34 rocket. And uh, so it all collapsed. So that was another success, right? That uh, trying to stop the stupid stuff that was going on mm-hmm. in key areas. And then there's the DCX program that, that, that the Space Frontier Foundation is more focused on than the California Space Development Council. The California Space Development Council, we don't trumpet this, attack the X-34 and stop that, and they were focused on DCX. But meanwhile, the light went on again for okay. the next big idea. Because of what I'd done is like we, we had changed national Indian policy. The, the tribes themselves got, went to their representatives and made their case. The light went on, and I talked to my friends on the Hill, on the space subcommittee, and I said, what if private citizens showed up and started briefing Congress on their vision for space and what they think their elected leaders should do? And what if we and 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 at the time, the space subcommittee staffer said, well, that's a great idea. By the way, we could give you the committee hearing room for the science committee hearing room and you could hold an event. And so that's exactly what I did in March of 1995. I organized the California Space Development Council, the Space Frontier Foundation, and uh, the National Space Society, and the Space Transportation Association to support this grassroots effort, including private citizens going to Congress. It was the first March storm, and and we organized an event on Capitol Hill. And uh, so we were already spooked some of the powers, interests that be. I was attacked but you don't want that crazy Charles Miller in charge of it. Let National Space Society be in charge of it. They called up Bob Walker, the chairman, and scared him. And so I got a call from a good friend of mine. Shanna Dale was staff director at the science committee. She said, we need to take this away from you and let somebody else be in charge of it. They gave the National Space Society in charge of this event on Capitol Hill that I'd organized, had the whole agenda, everything. This was a week out. And I said, fine, I... This is not about me. This is about doing the right thing. They took it over. Then the National Space Society tried to take over the lobbying event or cancel it. I said, I don't understand. They, they, had, they had withdrawn their support. They were going to call and make all the meetings a few weeks out. And I said, sorry, you're not going to have the event. And I said, what do you mean? I said, well, we're withdrawing the support for setting up the meetings. I said, you don't understand. Those, this event's going on. I'll set up the meetings. And so yeah. from California, these long distance calls you're talking about, yeah. I, my support staff made all the calls. We set up 52 meetings 
two weeks out for people to go have meetings. And uh, so this is where the missionary takes over, right? It's like, what do you mean? I'm, I'm not quitting. I just put all my clients, Native American tribes on hold. I said, I'm taking the next few weeks off. So, you know, we'll get back to you. And we had eight other people join me in D.C. for a week. And we had 52 congressional meetings in March of 1995. We had the events, went great. Newt Gringrich spoke, spoke and he, he laid out for the first time we should privatize the space shuttle. Shocked everybody. I think he just becomes Speaker of the House. And then we briefed 52 members of Congress. And the most compelling thing that came out of this, I, we had one meeting. It was Mike Heaney, who was one of the original nine, who was become, would become a chairman of the Space Frontier Foundation later. We had a meeting with one of the 52 meetings with the staff director of defense appropriations. And there was this idea called X-33. It was a follow-on the DCX. Uh, that uh, Tim Kiger and, and Dana Rohrbacher were championing, and he didn't want to do it. He was being tarred and vilified for being against the future. And, 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 I, and we sat down with him, and I said, well, he said, what do you want? And I said, well, we'd like to have a fly-off between NASA and the Air Force for competition. There should be two X-33 prototypes. And he says, well, I can't do that. And that, in many cases, that would have been the end of the meeting. And he go, I go, well, what could you do? He says, well, I could fund $100 million for an X in the Air Force for RLV technology development. And I thought about it a second, and I go, okay, that's a deal. We ended up, and we were supposed to get support from the Senate, right? And so we didn't, they ended up getting $50 million in the House appropriation, nothing in the Senate. They went to conference, got $25 million. That went to the Air Force, a good friend of ours named Jess Sponable, to receive that money. And so from us, this is nine people. The, the very clear result is nine people got a $25 million appropriation created for reusable launch vehicle technology. One week of our time, is like you round it up, it's $3 million. So our mantra the next year was, is one week of your life worth $3 million? And the next year, we had 40 people show up at the March yeah. <laughs> And we had everybody's attention then. So that was, the, that was the start of a big breakthrough, that the insight that we are private citizens living in a free society. Our power is in exercising our rights and going to our elected leaders and presenting our vision and what we think Congress should do and what the U.S. government should do to, to implement our vision. We should not be depending on big government agencies or big budget scientists or aerospace companies to do our work for us. That's, that's abdicating our responsibilities and in implementing. So I learned this from native tribes, right? Don't let somebody else do it. You go do it. Right. So right? The, that was the breakthrough. How many of the, of these first nine were, are money suit wearing K Street like refined lobbyists? Like well, none of them were refined lobbyists. There was at least one of them was refined suit wearing, but he's a brilliant okay. friend. His name is Ransom Wooler, and uh, he was a lawyer in Illinois, but he loved space, and uh, so he got involved, and uh, he actually got lobbied by. By the National Space Society, what are you sure you want to do this with this crazy Charles Miller guy? And he he was like, he told me all about it. 
and he had a great time and and we had tremendous results right but there's always pushback like what, what there's was always the somebody threatened by it what was the, what was the threat like why was what was it about nss was it something at the time the national space society was still in the old paradigm that we we needed to do to do partnerships with big aerospace companies and and we go along to get along and we 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 need to be good to NASA. We can't create conflict with NASA. And you know, that's we just support. We're cheerleaders, we're supporters, we support the existing program. And we were change agents, right? This yeah. is that we the, the change agents got together and said that doesn't work. And we we need to do an alternative vision. We're not going to get there by supporting it. And the vast majority of space, you know, Paul, you know, space supporters at the time didn't get it. So we were the change agents, and when we advocated a different strategy, it was a threat to the status quo. Okay. And that that's what you have to acknowledge. It's like, yes, those are good people. They're not going to like it. I. You know, I then lived the next 20, 30 years. I'm still living being a threat to the status quo, right? You just have to know that's part of the mantle you have to take on, right? And that it's going to come and you're prepared for it. And and uh, and that's that's every change agent runs into that. That's, that's part of it, right? That yeah. The objective is not to get a majority or a supermajority necessarily agreeing with you. It's not about popularity. It's about getting enough people to move your ideas forward. Right. So it, when you, when you have these conversations on the Hill, and again, some of the folks, I'm going to guess many of the folks that will watch this conversation haven't done this sort of thing of going to the Hill. And I'm going to ask the question that begged, you know, that has the answer built into it. But like, was that a thing that was only available back then? Like, that you could actually go and talk to. Congress. Oh, it's really easy. They didn't have any security. Just walk in, you know, so you still can get in. Yep. But it was like it was against conventional wisdom. Everybody just assumed you, you, you kind of, you know, support by writing letters that was top down and you support the existing program. The aerospace companies were donating to, uh, to the National Space Society and uh, they would withdraw their support if you didn't do exactly what they want. That's how they control is by giving you money and they control the narrative and they and they influence you quickly, you know, subtly through. Oh, I, I don't want you to do that. Right. And there's always strings to the money. And so that was that was all part of the problem. And and uh, and they have their lobbyists go to the hill and they control the communications. And so if there is not an alternative view. It takes a while to break through the noise. You have to do it consistently. You have to have you have to have a powerful, effective message in the first place. You have to have your arguments all lined up. You have to know what you're talking about. But if you have a powerful vision and a, an effective message and you deliver it consistently and you give them something specific to do and give them the reason why they do it, you know, the vast majority of people in the Hill want to do the right thing, Right. Most most of the people you're talking to are twenty somethings, and it's still the same. Early twenty somethings, they're a few years out of college. They're yep. idealists. They want to do the right thing, and 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 uh, most of the the breakthroughs in policy and law in the United States are actually completely bipartisan. 
you see all this fighting in the news, but that's not how most stuff gets done. It's, you know, most stuff gets done in a bipartisan manner. You, you, you know, it takes at best a couple years to, to get enough consensus to break through. But if you do it well, you can make huge changes over time. Yes. And you don't have to be a um, experienced space professional to be able to do this because at the time you were doing this for the first time, you weren't the Charles Miller that you are now. You were the younger you, version. It was like, hey, let's just go and talk to people. So I think- well, it's just like being an entrepreneur is like when the first time I did it, we didn't know what we didn't know. And yep. we just constantly made it better. Right. We learned. And I'd and then, already kind of learned through working for Indian tribes, like yeah. how to how to do it. I'd been studying, thinking about it. And we just constantly got better. So you kept iterating until and but what you have to core is a powerful vision of powerful strategy and very concrete, specific things you can do. And you, you kind of anticipate the reasons they'd be against it. And like there's always, you know, dozens of things you could advocate and you need to hone it down to the top three or five. Right. Yeah. And so like this, these are the reasons things we're going to do this year. So, March storm. The first one works well. Second one blows the blows blows the bolts off and you know in the next couple of years the second year and we actually in the first year we were pushing commercial space 95 96 we really formally started pushing what was a commercial space act it was a catch-all bob walker chairman of the house science committee and the people in newt gingrich and but it was bipartisan but there were more leaders on the republican side dana rohrbacher tim Kiger moved over to the senate Muncie came to work for Capitol Hill for Rohrbacher. So we had advocates on both sides and both houses. Key thing in that bill that we in, in three years going to get passed, we got it through an 86 through the House because Bob Walker, and you know, his science committee 90, chair and Newt 96. got it through. But the Senate at the time was the black hole space. Right. And so it took <laughs> us two extra years, 97, 98. We intensely focused on getting this bill passed in the Senate. And it took us two years of extra work. And by 1998, we got it to Senate. The, the House kept on passing it, the Commercial Space Act, and it became known as the Commercial Space Act of 1998. And in hindsight, the biggest breakthrough there thing in that bill was a, com a complete extension of the Launch Service Purchase Act of 1990. We extended it to buy commercial services to space station cargo delivery services, right? Okay. And so that became everything a decade later to space to the creation of spacex spacex was on the verge of collapsing and going bankrupt it's been in all the histories that have been yeah. written elon uh, acknowledges it in december 2008 um december 23rd 2008 two days before christmas elon was you know on on the verge of mental breakdown he he was a month away from losing both tesla and spacex and running out of money and no one give him money because of the collapse in the financial markets. And he didn't know what to do. And Bill Gerstemeyer, who's head of human spaceflight, called him up and said, Elon, I am calling to let you know you have gotten a $1.8 billion contract from NASA for commercial space station cargo delivery. NASA would have never, ever done that if it wasn't the law forcing them to do it. And that, that was law. us. That was space advocates in the yeah. 1990s made that happen. 
And that so we we directly caused this revolution. And it's not like you were doing it for Elon because we, we we were not doing we I didn't know who Elon was. So we we were we had trust in the American entrepreneurial spirit that as a new strategy that we should leverage commercial space innovation. And and uh, we just had faith that if we changed the policy to force NASA to buy uh, commercially, that the the American entrepreneurial spirit would would make it happen. That we just had faith. It was faith in the American entrepreneurial spirit that if you change the policy, it'll work. And the members of Congress who made it happen had the faith. And. We didn't know it was a guy named Elon. We just had that belief. All those people who came to the Hill and all the fighting for years, um, that made it happen. And that lesson is one of the ones that's really important because as people enter into this industry, we can see that, oh, okay, it, it, like it makes if you dial a high enough level, you go, okay, well, we had the big rocket, then we tried the shuttle, and now we have these other rockets, and it just makes We still have the stupid big rocket. That's another story. I, it's a, yes, but like you can – it seems natural, and you can just be like, okay, sure, that's the way things are done. But right. the fact of the matter is we can benefit today from those things that were laid, Yeah, but there's more still to there's be done. There's more to be done. So and setting it's, up. it's just an extension of everything yeah. we've done that's worked very well, right? So, so this is the time since a lot of uh, Space Frontier advocates are listening. So this is about the time, 1986, after the second March storm, and it was hugely successful. That's when the California Space Development Council and the Space Frontier Foundation, who had been working together, the foundation had supported what the I was still part of the California Space Development Council and a leader there. I was the uh, president and we had other National Space Society people wanted to they hated the success we were having. They kicked it. They wanted to come in and vote us out of the California Space Development Council. And meantime, they didn't know that I was, you know, us. David Anderman, Ben Muniz, bless his heart, passed away, who was part of that, and other grassroots activists in the California Space Development Council. We were already talking to the, to the Space Frontier Foundation about a merger. And uh, so it was rather easy, like, well, we'll just keep the Space Frontier Foundation's name. But from my perspective, if you study it, it was a merger of equals, and, and we just let them keep all the credit. But everything that came there with the huge growth in the Space Frontier Foundation throughout the, the rest of the decade and the next decade was really the partnership of the, the media operation the foundation led, and but uh, the one-two punch with what we were doing on Capitol Hill, right? A huge number of foundation advocates, the, I would suggest the majority of them the next five years were people who came out of the March storm in pro space because we renamed the March storm to pro space. Ah. And, uh, you know, people like David Anderman and Margot Deckard and Karenia Cusick and Mike Heaney and, and others proving they had the vision and they're an activist by doing the March storm. And then they got pulled into the space frontier foundation. So the foundation had a rather fast growth rate and became named the most the pound for pound, the most influential space activist community in the world. 
organization. Bob Zubrin, then at the Mars Society, stated that. You know, the foundation took over the leadership role clearly in the future of space, you know, and at that time. What was, besides, you know, a week, a year, what were you, what else was part of your your world during this period of time? Like, so the March I was storm. Still make, I was still, you know, in the, in the early nineties, I was still making, paying my bills by working for native American tribes till 19, uh, about 1998, uh, 99. I, uh, for the first time I'd been supporting commercial entrepreneurs, changing laws, mm-hmm. but I never thought the time was right. I thought, it would me. It was. It didn't. It was irrational. And then in 1998, I co-founded my first commercial space startup called Constellation Services International. It was David Anderman and Ben Meniz and I. In in uh, 1998, we started a company, and we originally started focused on a way to repair, maintain, upgrade satellites in the big constellations of satellites at the time that were like Iridium and Global Star and Skybridge and Teledesic. And we had a way to to repair them. And the way was we were, as if you recall, we were partners. We were allies with Russia. Boris Yeltsin was president of Russia. And so we had a way of using Russian technology. It was actually lunar lander technology called the, the LK or the, uh, the T2K was their prototype. And we said we could turn that into a, a reusable space tug that could park at the International Space Station and by the way, we'll just we'll park it there, and when a satellite that's at a higher altitude, but the basically the same inclination as the space station, we could take those people, those astronauts could go up for a couple days to a higher altitude, repair the satellite, and then come back down. And the, it was just the marginal cost of a few days' time of the astronaut, and they could repair the the satellite. So it was a cool idea. Failed for many reasons was it just didn't fit. It was too big of an idea. We needed hundreds of millions of dollars to to make it work. But uh, it was my first entrepreneurial effort, the CSI or Constellation Services. And we pivoted. We then pivoted several times there. But that was that was what came next to me. And that now for the first time becoming an entrepreneur in the late 90s. And, And just in case folks, you know, aren't aware that same idea continues. Satellite servicing continues to be the hot new topic. So when you hear people today talk about, ooh, the hot new thing and the brand new company that has this revolutionary idea, I, there's a- I, I haven't seen many new ideas. So Link is a new idea. Most of what I see going on is old ideas, right? Some of them really cool, and I'm glad people are funding them. But my, my, my problem is many of the ideas I see is like, I, I know the problem with them and it's like that's a great idea in five years or ten years, but this is why I would this is why I would not do that yet. But just like me, my first idea made no sense. You know, in hindsight, it was you know, I now know all the reasons it wouldn't, but I learned from it. Yeah. So I I I hold my powder unless I'm asked by one of my friends who's a venture capitalist, if somebody asks me, it was a space entrepreneur, it's like, what do you think of this? I'll give them my feedback in private. And it's like, you're investing your time. You should know what you're up against and what you need to solve that. I rarely get asked that. 
Um, you know, but uh, is that because people know that what you're going to say, and they're like, "No, if if I was a space entrepreneur, I would go to someone like me and say, this is my idea. Tell me how to make it better, or tell me why." what the problems are because I'll be forewarned and I, maybe I can go solve them. Right. That would be the, if you're truly committed to learning. So two things you need. So obviously based on what I've said as a missionary, I'm completely stubborn. I don't quit. If you can combine that with becoming a learning machine Ah. over the long term, you'll never be stopped, but not wanting to hear the faults in your plan That's a problem you can't fix. You should want to hear the problems you're playing as early as possible so you can fix them, so you can learn what to address. And so hiding, sticking your head in the sand and not asking for that is a a fundamental flaw in personality. An entrepreneur should get over that. And and, uh, if, you know, should want to hear what the problem is. Right. You're only limiting your own ability to become great. Charles Miller's prescription is grit plus growth, uh, I guess. That's and learning machine. uh, Yeah. Right. So. So. Right. Yeah. That's I guess uh, that's your way to say growth. Yeah. All right. So as we wrap up this, and I, I know we're leaving huge chunks of the industry's history. Yeah. Like we later created new space. The yes. Frontier Foundation created the whole mantra and strategy. We did a pivot in the early 00s from like, what are we going to do now? We did a, the foundation did another pivot and we decided we had a big debate. Rick, mm. Rick, my good friend, Rick Tomlinson wanted to like, let's go do the moon and let's go do asteroids. And Bob Werb and I and others said, we completely disagree. He said, we, we need to focus on leveraging commercial space. There's not enough investment in it. Um, and, and, uh, we, ch- you know, Rick loved this alt space theme and mm-hmm. we said, let's do new space it was, uh, um, several of us, Bill Bolin, Bob Ward and I, it's like, we need an alternate to alt space. And I read this book called the new, new thing. And it came to be uh-huh. new space. And I took it back to Bill Bolin and Bob, and they said, that's a great idea. And Bill said, put it together in one word, new space. And that became the meme, right? We then changed the annual meeting to the conference to New Space. We located it in Silicon Valley and uh, we changed how, you know, a lot of this is changing how people think. We changed how uh, Capitol Hill thought about space, right, with the March storm. But we brought the conference to Silicon Valley. We changed how private investors thought about space, right? This new category called New Space that just drives the old space people crazy. They hate it, right? Which is some of the, it's like you hear these conferences attacking new space. Well, we're new space. And, you know, it's like, you know, you've won when all the old space companies are saying, well, we're new space too, right? right. So, and, and then they're having conferences attacking new space. Like we, that's when you won. And, and now there's all this investment. And so again, yep. that's a huge breakthrough for the Space Frontier Foundation that led that. So, I want to have you back at when we get to the next season and we can move into some of the, cause I, there's even more stories. Yeah. Like, do me a favor. Um, as you wrap it up, like tell me how that doing something great then fits into kind of what you're doing now and how much have you, have you met 
that objective uh, that you set out for yourself? Well, the, like, the, the, the great thing about Link, so I, I, when I was at CSI, we were watching the, the inflection point called Small Satellite Revolution. And we knew this was a breakthrough, kind of like in parallel, like the personal computer revolution, writing Moore's Law. And I went looking for the breakthrough small satellites. It's kind of like the analogy is the VisiCalc of that was personal computers, the emerging killer app that nobody thought of. I went okay. looking for the emerging killer app for small satellites that nobody thought of. And we found it. It's satellite direct to phone. And that's a whole nother story. We are going to connect everyone everywhere on the planet, satellite direct to the phone, and we're going to use free enterprise and technology innovation to pull the next billion people out of poverty on this planet. Now, that is greatness. So that everybody here at Link loves what we're doing. And we've, we've proven it. Everybody thought we were crazy. That's impossible. Well, now we're doing it. We've proven the tech in 25 countries. We are the world's only operational and commercially licensed at-the-phone company in the world for connecting standard, ordinary mobile phones. Charles, anything that folks watching this conversation can do for you? Like, do you have any requests of the of folks that, like, we could do something to help you? Carry out the mission, right? The broad mission, large-scale economic settlement and development and settlement of space. That's what I would ask you to do. Figure it out. Don't give up. Never, ever, ever quit. If you, you fail at something, learn from it and try something different. Figure out what didn't work and do something different. Carry out the vision. That's what I would ask from this audience. All right. A, uh, a simple task. Just, just do it. Um, just do it. Yeah. Charles Miller, an advocate of the Space Frontier Foundation, a clear pioneer, uh, one of the, the people who actually laid the tracks that led to the, the space world that we enjoy today. Thank you so much for your time and for your wisdom and for your service to the frontier. Thank you, Sean.